This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're in a situation that we haven't dealt with in modern times. The pandemic here has really accelerated the investments that we've been advocating for for years. From a macro standpoint, I think our sport industry is really forced to look at the business a little bit differently. In-depth conversations with the leaders in the sports industry. Esports is a good aberration. We're still moving forward. We're part of something much bigger than sport right now. The health and safety of our stakeholders is what's most important. Every moment, I think we're all from a business perspective thinking about the impact that the virus is having across the country. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Michael Barr. And I'm Mike Lynch. Over the next hour, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. Join us later in the show as we speak with the executive editor for Sports Illustrated, John Wertheim. But first, we begin with many top NBA players hesitant to promote coronavirus vaccines, which is interesting to me because the health experts say, well, that's the way to go to beat this. But uh, the top players are, I don't know, why, Lynch? Well, this is is kind of a multifold move here by the NBA players, which really surprises us because on this show we've talked a number of times how the NBA of all the four four major sports has the best relationship with its commissioner and with its owners. And here's a little bit of a chasm right here. Um, I know that a lot of the players aren't happy about having to fly to Atlanta for an all-star game after they had a shortened offseason. I think there's a lot of doubt from some of the players. Uh, Everyone's hearing, well, the first shot's okay, but the second shot makes you feel like you have the flu for a couple of days. So they're worried about their performance, and there's no, since the vaccine was given first uh, almost like a year ago maybe in some parts of the world, there isn't any long-term data and long-term effects. So there's a little bit of apprehension from the players. Now, ex-players have uh, made the, uh, Bill Russell made one. He said, this is one shot I'm not going to block, which I thought was pretty clever. Mm. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar has done one. Greg Popovich has done one, encouraging everyone to get the vaccine. So this is a little bit of a rift right here. And I'm, I'm not sure that it's not so much like, okay, we'll do the We'll do the promos if you get rid of All-Star Weekend because we just need a little bit of a break. And something else, too, is that many of the league's top players uh, who are African-American believe that it can impact people in the black and brown communities because they've been disproportionately impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic, Lindsay. Correct. Absolutely. And that that's that. And the NBA has been on board with uh, with uh, social justice uh, platforms, uh, making loud statements, and this is another one for them. And there, you know, there's there's a great deal of validity to, to that reasoning as well. This kind of follows in with the the vaccine story. Mm-hmm. Uh, 49ers president Al Guido uh, on Levi Stadium being used as a COVID nineteen vaccination site. And got a piece of sound for that to hear. Well, it's to get back to some level of normalcy in our country. And, and frankly, I mean, I think if you look at our facility being 2 million square feet, when we approached the county about mass vaccination sites, it only made sense to do it at Levi Stadium. We have over 6,000 parking stalls, 30,000 square feet in the area that we're doing the vaccinations to date. And, you know, at this point in time, we're only limited by the supply of the vaccine. Uh, we're doing roughly, we've approached over 2,000. We hope to climb to 15,000, which would make us the largest vaccination site, site in the state of California. And, Lynchy, I love the, the mega vaccination sites uh, where Levi Stadium, uh, they've done it here uh, in New York with Yankee Stadium and City yeah. Field. The problem 
now, and of course, you know, they've done it uh, a lot at Fenway. The problem now is the supply, trying to get uh, as many vaccines as they can. Gillette Stadium, the home of the New England Patriots, um, six-time Super Bowl champion, New England Patriots, by the way, Michael Bond. <laughs> Thank you, man. Um, appreciate that. <laughs> Ouch. Uh, <laughs> has been open for a while, and uh, uh, on Tuesday of this week, they celebrated their 65,878th person being vaccinated, and that coincides with the capacity for Gillette Stadium. So that person, it's like going through the uh, – the, the checkout line at the supermarket and ding, 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 ding. And the balloons come down and the confetti comes down. Congratulations. You know, you're a one millionth shopper. But a woman named Bridgette Peters, wow. and I don't know what she got. She got the visit from Pat Patriot, and uh, <laughs> she was kind of a big celebrity. <laughs> she's sitting there minding her own. She's got her scrubs on. I think she's a healthcare worker. And uh, ding, 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 ding. And all of a sudden, the TV cameras came up. But uh, I think it's great that, that Levi Stadium is doing it and other stadiums around the country. Fenway Park uh, has been doing it here in, in, in Boston. Boston. And, you know, but I think this whole thing started, Mike, with a, a conversation we had with the Atlanta Hawks last year when they were opening up a, a State Farm of, of, uh, Arena for voting. And I think when they open a lot of these big arenas for voting to get out the vote, especially the, the black vote, um, that, that gave owners ideas, hey, maybe we can also use this as a, 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 a site for vaccination. So, you know, it's been contagious in a good way. Obviously, I'm not making fun of COVID, but can you imagine this woman? She says, I'm going to sneak out <laughs> and I'll just get here and nobody will know. And all of a sudden, here's the confetti and the cameras. Oh, bless her heart. Uh, by the way, pitchers and catchers, man, we're here. And I have to get my fantasy uh, team ready, man, because I got to do my homework. I'm excited. Yeah, uh, pitchers and catchers uh, reported this week. Many t- players, uh, teams had their first uh, workout for pitchers and catchers, and it's, it, it's, it gives everyone hope, okay? Well, this, the snow's going to melt eventually, and we're going to be able to put the boots away and the jackets away, and there's going to be sunshine and green grass. We know there's sunshine and green grass somewhere on the planet, and it'll be uh, coming to an area near us pretty soon. But it's uh, it's been cut down a lot. Uh, I know a lot of camps are not allowing fans to come in and you know in in the state of florida it's a big big deal because there's a lot of school vacations up north and everyone comes down it's part of their february vacation let's go down let's go over to a minor league ballpark and get up close and it's it's really the best way to get an autograph and get a picture taken with a a major league baseball player now once again that's another opportunity that COVID has uh, yanked out from underneath the feet of you know a lot of uh, excited and deserving people uh, by the way, Fernando Tatis, as we were talking oh. about, fourteen years and a bunch of moolah, man. As Chico Escuela once said on Saturday Night Live, baseball been very, very good to me. He hasn't played. <laughs> <laughs> He's twenty-two years old, hasn't even played a full major league season, one hundred forty-three games, and they were so impressed. The San Diego Padres. Here's three hundred forty large for you, young man, at the age of twenty-two. Good for him. Earlier in the week, we spoke with the Daytona 500 champion, Michael McDowell. We discussed if a win like this will create a bigger buzz for sponsors down the road. Well, absolutely. I mean, it it, it does change. It changes, you know, from a lot of different aspects. But, you know, the fact that the Daytona 500 is the, the biggest race in our sport, it, it's the biggest race in, in, in motorsports. And to be able to provide that value to our partners, to, you know, our partner in particular loves travel stops on, 
you know, on the car and, and to get all the exposure that they're, that they're receiving. I mean, they've been a, 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 the backbone of our organization for nine years and uh, it's their first time to victory lane with the organization as well. So uh, it just means so much to them and to us and to be able to provide that for them. And, and like you said, I mean, we're Daytona 500 champions. And so now, you know, when we're having those conversations and we're trying to bring new partners in, it, it definitely changes the conversation and allows us to, you continue to grow this team and continue to make it better. And, and, and that helps us to win more races. And so, you know, this sport is, is tricky. It's, it's different than stick and ball sports. You got to have partners and you got to have sponsorship to be competitive. And so once you are competitive and, and you have that success, it just helps you to continue that and to, to make the program better. Michael, I want to go back to the moment uh, when you've got the, over the radio from NASCAR. Um, it, you described it perfectly. The seas parted, and the first thing that entered my mind was Moses and the Ten Commandments when the seas parted, and he just took the opportunity, and you were Moses, baby. You were just heading down the track. But you had to wait f- to find out where you were at that moment of caution, and I think your crew might have gotten the word before you did. I'm not sure because they, they had a cutaway, and they were all celebrating up and down. And I think you were still like, okay, let's not jinx it. Let's not jinx it. Did you see them celebrate? <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't know where you were in relation to the track to where, the way your crew was, but what was going through your head in those few seconds before you got official confirmation? Yeah, well, it felt like a long time, and, and I don't know the timing of it, but I think my, my crew might have been jumping the gun. Uh, but nobody, <laughs> on our, nobody on our radio said we won, you know? Um, we were just waiting to hear and, you know, so much goes through your mind in that, in that period of time. And you know, I was, I was fairly confident at first, um, that we'd won the race. And, you know, then my mind started going, man, I think we just won the Daytona 500. I, 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 I think we won, you know, and then immediately I just, it went to, but what if you didn't? <laughs> uh, and I'm like, I am going to be so mad that, you know, we finally get in position. And if we lose this thing by an inch, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do these interviews because I'm going to lose my mind. Um, so, yeah, you know, you go through so much emotion. Um, but, you know, they came over the radio and said uh, 34 car to, to victory lane. And, uh, man, I was just so overwhelmed in that moment, just, um, you don't even know how to express it. You know, you just, uh, yeah, there's so much joy and just excitement and just relief and gratitude. I mean, there's just everything all flowing at once, and it, it's an incredible feeling. And I think that for me and for our team, but, I mean, I really do feel like the journey is, is what makes that so special. I mean, it is the, all those years and all those starts. I mean, man, I lost 357 times. I mean, it's hard to lose 357 times, you know, and still get up thinking that you're going to win. And so all that building up, you know, it just it's just overwhelming. Now that's perseverance, Lynchy. <laughs> Love that, man. And what a and what a personality. I guarantee you he will no longer be a 100 to 1 long shot like he was in Daytona, and he's not going to go 358 races without a win again. And, and I just loved that that interview was just unvarnished. It was just a, a young guy. It was not that young. He's in mid thirties, thirty six years old. But you know how the exuberance and the excitement. It was genuine. You know, it wasn't scripted. It wasn't uh, you know parsed out. It was just he spoke right from his heart, and I loved it. We were talking about this off mic before we went on the air. <laughs> I always think of J R Hildebrandt. And if and anybody who knows racing knows what happened that year at Indianapolis. 
and he's racing. This young man is about to win the Indy 500. Nobody around. And then he's trying to pass a car on the outside, and he gets in the marbles out of in four, turn four, and hits the wall on the straightaway. Dan Weldon passes him, and Dan Weldon wins the race. And I always think, you know, uh, that guy is going to be like the Scott Norwood of racing. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I feel for him. And so that's why I'm so happy for Michael McDowell. Just when you thought you knew everything about NASCAR, along comes Michael Barr to just trump you with one more story that you had no clue. <laughs> <laughs> that was it was a shame. I, uh, Lindsay, I, I, I J.R. Hildebrand in, in the five. I felt so bad for that guy, man. It's like you know, but, but hey, that's racing. Uh, and as we come, by the way, Sunday afternoon. They're going to race at Daytona again, but they're going to be on the road course this time. Uh, so hopefully Michael McDowell says, yeah, I've been here. I know how to win. Don't you worry about it, kids. I got this one. So hopefully if he makes it two in a row, look out. Yeah, that would be something. And, uh, you know, it's a good move by NASCAR. They've got what, seven new courses, I think, this year, Mike. Is that right? Yeah. Um, and so they're, they're cutting down a little bit on the travel. Um, you know, normally everything would be packed up by Monday morning and shipped off to the to the next site. So they're staying, kind of, you know, using the same blueprint that the NBA and the NHL are using. Stay in the same city for maybe a couple of weeks or so, and then move on. So to cut down on the uh, the risk of of, of COVID and and uh, any COVID exposure. So NASCAR NASCAR's done a good job. And as we said when we had the uh, the uh, president of NASCAR on last week. You know, it's tailor-made for them. They're in their cars. They're isolated, uh, except for their pit crews. Uh, they're away from everybody else. So, zoom, zoom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder about this. This part I do wonder about. it. This year was a 40-car field. Uh, and usually, a lot of times, it's 43 cars. Uh, but, they, but they narrowed it down. And, and part of that has to do with race teams in general. Because it's hard to put a race team on the track. But I, I, I always like the Daytona 500, the way they did qualifying is that uh, first you're running for speed, so you get the the top two for the pole position, and then you're running the, well, I still call them the twins, or the Gatorade duel that they run, the, the two 150s. And people in the back, which I that's where I really love the racing, they're trying to get in the 500. And, and it's like, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? And to me, I wish every track would do it like that. Every race would do it like that. That's a heck of a lot of fun, Lindsay. Yep, it is. And uh, it, it, I think from a production standpoint, if you're just a casual uh, race fan, if you tune in and watch a NASCAR race, I think you're going to be hooked. And if you ever get to go to one, and I, I've been to a couple up in New Hampshire, and I said, and I have a couple of guys who are uh, buddies of mine who are really into it, and they said, come on up, we'll just see what's going on. And I, I loved it. I, I absolutely loved it, and um, so uh, I think it's they've done a great job here. Steve Phelps uh, is uh, their, their president. He's done a great, great job uh, of, of promoting it, organizing it, and uh, hitting all the curveballs that have been thrown his way, uh, like everybody else during this uh, pandemic. Mm, I love the smell of burning rubber in the morning. Joining us now is the executive editor for Sports Illustrated, you've heard of that magazine, John Wertheim. John, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, good to be here. I have to ask you about the Australian Open. We'll start with that. We spoke uh, with Australian Open tournament director 
Craig Tiley. He was on Bloomberg earlier this week, and he discussed how enthusiasm has picked up for this year's Australian Open. At the beginning, there was a slow uptake of tickets, um, and then within about two or three days, it really accelerated. Now, unfortunately, John, uh, there was a lockdown issue at one point, but uh, hopefully that's not going to put a damper on the sport going forward. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, Australia has basically beaten COVID, and one of the ways they did it was uh, they were they were really strict. And so there was a, a small flare-up. I mean, when the tournament started, the players that came into Australia had 14 days in a hotel room of quarantine, which, uh, you know, quarantine, which is much stricter than they had at any other event. And they were middle of the tournament. There was a, a, a bit of a flare-up in the community, and everybody had to go into – to lockdown and it was disappointing for the tournament it was disappointing for the tournament's balance sheet the players uh enjoyed playing in front of fans for the first few days and suddenly it was a bit of an adjustment when there were no fans but i think there was an acknowledgement there was a you know there was a respect and an acceptance that this was all done in service of health and safety and the good news is for these last few matches the fans are back at least in limited number John, it's Mike Lynch up in Boston. Um, are we watching the uh, evolution of the changing of the guard in the women's front with Osaka and Serena, or have we already seen it? It's uh, a good question. I, I think, um, yeah, I think last night made it official. And uh, Osaka, Naomi Osaka, beat Serena Williams, but she didn't just beat her. She sort of beat her playing Serena Williams-style tennis. She dictated points, and she overcame some nerves, and basically played the match on her terms. That's the kind of, you know, that's, that's Serena Williams game plan right there. And uh, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, Serena Williams is 39 years old. She's not the player she once was. It's been more than four years since she won her last major, but you know, she's still getting to the semifinals and finals of tournaments. She's still beating top players. I, I was just telling myself, this were, this were a team sport. It's easy, right? You say you're going to come in off the bench or you're, you're going to be the designated hitter. Or, you know, you, you were averaging 30 points in your career. Now we, we need you for 18. You know, in an individual sport, it's not like that. You sort of, you know, you, you either win or you lose. And I think it's tough for her. She's not the player she once was. She's 39 years old, but she's also, she's not embarrassing herself. You know, it's not, it's not Muhammad Ali uh, fighting Trevor Burbick uh, on the barge. I mean, she's still, she's still right up there. So I, I don't know what you do if you're her because you're you're too good to quit, but you're not the player you used to be, and that's uh, that's that's a tough position. Which sport? Because you you guys are like the Bible of, of sports in terms of reading the magazine. Which sport probably generates the best for you in terms of readership and uh, more circulation? NFL is king, yeah. and. Uh, Actually, it's it's funny that like you know their you know, parents parents might be second guessing letting their kids play football, and we may have have our issues with the NFL and and health and safety and social justice and um, Super Bowl ratings maybe tick down, but the the NFL is absolutely king, and uh, there, there's very you know number two is probably college football. So uh, f- football may have these existential issues. But, you know, no, no no parents are saying, boy, we really need to have a family talk. Should we let our kids play basketball or not? But um, <laughs> as a sort of as, as a media property, the, the NFL is absolutely the king. 
John, let me follow up on that. Um, did you have feet on the ground at stadiums uh, like you normally do on a regular uh, season this year, or was most of your coverage by your writers done via Zoom and, and other uh, uh, other platforms? Yeah, it, it really depended on, on the game and the state and the time of year. It de definitely it was a lot more like everyone. I mean, it was a lot less travel. It was a lot more Zoom. It was a lot more caution. But, you know, I mean, we, we had people at the Super Bowl and it. Brady, Brady, you know, at Breeze uh, Brady. And, um, you know, I, I was at the, the French Open, but not the Australian Open. It's just, it's really depended uh, event to event. And I think what's going to be interesting is what sports are going to look like when we have this, this reset. I mean, I, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of TV, for example, people are broadcasting games from, from a booth in ESPN or, you know, if, if you're, Covering the Brooklyn Nets, you need to send a whole TV crew on the road. I think it's going to be interesting in media. You, you, we've all seen what we can and can't do by traveling, and it's going to be interesting to see what goes back to the way it was and what's going to become sort of the new normal. And to follow up on what we were talking about, and, and Lynchy brought this up, about how COVID has changed the coverage of sports in general it is it's got to be harder because obviously you're not at the ballpark you know sometimes and sometimes the play-by-play -play guys um, are in a different location how has COVID in your mind changed the landscape of covering sports it's I think it's just kind of put this this layer in and again I mean I I think we're all going through this in every industry I think it's, it's no different if you're a lawyer taking a zoom deposition or if you're having a conference via Zoom instead of in person, I, I just think we're, we're realizing personal in our interactions matter. And in sports, sometimes the best information or the insights you pick up are not looking at a stat sheet, but just having a conversation or running into someone or seeing how someone walks from the locker room onto the field. I, I think you're missing that level of, of intimacy. Again, I mean, I think this isn't unique to sports by any stretch. I mean, I think we all are realizing – yeah, Zoom is great, and there's a lot of cost savings, and, and sometimes there's there's unnecessary travel. But I think we're also realizing that, you know, when you're right, I was talking to someone who said, yeah, well, you used to have a writer's room for a TV show, and we'd all sit there, and we'd have all this creative energy, and we'd be, you know, taking one idea and building on it, and now it just doesn't work the same over Zoom. And I, I think, you know, we're realizing that in sports, too, at least in terms of media coverage, a lot of the coverage is based not just on what you see during the game, but sort of, uh, you know, be, being part of being, being in the restaurant, you know, being, uh, be, being there in the locker room and witnessing things firsthand. And I think that's what, that's what's missing. Lindsay, John, I'm not going to lie. It's like, I can't get Zoom. I, I am just, <laughs> I, I, I tried to do a Zoom call and, and the people seriously were looking at my armpit and, and I could not <laughs> get this going it's i i, I respect everybody yeah <laughs> i'm sorry i had to bring that in though <laughs> you, know, you, you took one of the words right out of my mouth john intimacy and i think that's been one of the uh, uh 
just the standards and the staples for Sports Illustrated is that you go, you you peel back so many layers, and you just get really personal with with the subjects that you're interviewing, and and that's sort of been stripped away. I I did local television, and I still do a little bit up here in Boston for 40 years, and we're the typical 10 second soundbite, and you know, highlights this and that. How will you be able to overcome this intimacy? Because that really is the benchmark and the trump card of Sports Illustrated. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it is just finding different types of stories that you can tell. And, uh, you know, I, mean, I, I think we were all sort of operating on the assumption that things will go back to some semblance of normal. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we're sort of, you know, you're, you're not having the, the games and the game experience that you used to have. How else are you going to tell these stories? And maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe it's finding retired athletes, for example, that uh, – are happy to engage on a on a video call. I mean, I, th- I think some of us just looking for different ways to tell stories. But but again, I mean, I think we're all waiting to see what life is going to be like when things get back to normal. And you know, I mean, the, the, the flip side too is I've noticed that people do seem, you know, the, the, there does seem to be this kind of uh, collective. We're all going through this, and when you do connect with people, athletes, coaches, managers, agents. There, there does seem to be a level of sort of, uh, of of warmth that maybe wasn't there before. This is more in general as being a, one heck of a magazine, Sports Illustrated. But now things have changed. People get their reading material online. How how has it changed for you guys as an industry from going from people just, I got to go to the newsstand and get a copy of Sports Illustrated to people now going online yeah i mean in, in some ways it's you know i started in the i guess the late 90s and in some ways it's, it's a completely different job and you know i've been covering cover cover the australian open uh you know you're podcasting and you're tweeting and you're doing some videos and you're writing uh, i did a you know, quick q a reaction to serena williams it was posted online you know five minutes after the match ended. And, you know, that's, that's a lot different from what it used to be, where you used to, you know, have a, have a couple of days and you'd craft a story and it would come in the mailbox it was after the Thursday after the tournament. Um, and in some ways, it's exactly the same thing. What are you doing? You're, you're watching an event. You're trying to tell people something they didn't know. You're providing analysis. You're uh, trying to combine data with intuition and, and write. Um so, I mean, the, the pace has picked up. The technology has obviously picked up. But in other ways, pre- pretty much the same thing. I mean, the, sort of the ultimate kind of uh, ultimate task and the ultimate relationship with the audience isn't all that different. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think every every media outlet is trying to, you know, ESPN has their changes and challenges too. And I think we're all kind of trying to, you, you want to go to where the audience is. But at the end of the day, it's, it's pretty much the same underlying you know it's, it's not like you you went to med school and suddenly you're asked to be a lawyer like at the end of the day you're still trying to provide information and analysis and give the audience something they wouldn't get anywhere else which is kind of that's that's always been part of the job description so uh yeah it's it, it's crazy times in media but it's, it's kind of fun given this 24 7 instant news how do you pick out your cover for your magazine so that it is, uh, it is not outdated by the time it arrives in my mailbox? 
uh, that, that's exactly the drill. Uh, you, you try to find an image that uh, that still sings and that still is going to have resonance. But yeah, you want to find a story, an angle, an image that uh, you know. No, no one's going to Sports Illustrated to say, "Oh man, uh, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers won the Super Bowl." Um, so that's that's. I mean, you sort of you're, you're exactly right. The, the challenge is to find an image that's going to have some endurance. And that's going to have some, uh, you know, that, that's going to be different. And it's not going to be something you saw anywhere else. But that also is going to have some some staying power because, you know, no no one's picking up magazines to get a, a news break anymore. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since kids. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. John, please, 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 please. Can you stick around for the number of the week? I, I just love messing with Lynchy's head. Well, he actually messes with mine because he gets it all the time. Uh, can you stick around just for a second? I can give you a question. About yeah. It. No, he's a Yale guy, so he's, you know, we, we, we're fighting an uphill battle. Right? <laughs> <laughs> this, this is on Roush Fenway, Roush Fenway Racing. And they just announced its carbon neutrality certification. Now, to become carbon neutral, RFR, they set a goal to recycle this percentage of every race car. That includes the oil, the rubber, aluminum, and carbon fiber. What I want is what is the percentage that RFR set for a goal to recycle the car? And I'll start with later. I'm going to uh, pick out my favorite year that Harvard beat Yale in the football game it was 1975. So I'm going to go 75. <laughs> <laughs> John? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I'm thinking low. I'm thinking 10. You're thinking 10? Lynchy said 75. To become carbon neutral. Roush Fenway Racing set a goal to recycle 90% of every race car. And what they've done, they've reduced its overall waste produced by more than 100 tons over the last decade. They switched to LED lighting throughout its campus. They really did a heck of a job. So I I salute that 90%. I can see the oil, but, man, there's so much that you have to do. But, wow, good for them. John, you are the man. Thank you so much for joining us, man. I, I hope, uh, uh, in fact, i got to get my uh, next copy online of Sports Illustrated. Thank you again, sir. You got it. I shanked on the number, but it was a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, John. Appreciate it. All right. Anytime. I'm amazed how the industry has changed, especially yeah. when you're trying to put out a magazine. Uh, and I guess calling it a magazine is like calling a piece of music a record because you don't have records anymore. And uh, I'm wondering what day, Lynch, you were going to get to where you don't have a paper magazine anymore. I really would dread it because that's one of my Christmas gifts every year that I receive and I give out as a year subscription to Sports Illustrated. To My sons-in-law I used to give it to my dad when he was around. And, um, you know, they've cut back from the weekly now to, um, I want to say it's almost monthly, 
and it's it's sad that it's uh, you know every Thursday it's not sitting in the mailbox right there. Now it is. They do have an, an excellent edition online. I, I'm used to every week I would have the copy right there on on yep. the coffee table, and yep. uh, and I need to go through it. Or if I needed a fact, I would go through it again, uh, and just oh yeah, I remember that. And I started collecting them, and then. You know, yeah. one day it's like, you know, I, I had to get rid of them. So it's, you know, it was starting to clutter up the basement with so many of them. But I missed that paper copy. That that was something else. And yep, I agree. Absolutely. You've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We are here each and every week at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcasts. You can catch those Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. And I'm Mike Lynch. You can follow me at LynchyWCBB. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio around the world.